Welcome into 2 for Drafts. Austin Gell here, the host of 2 for Drafts, a Rookies and Draft Prospects podcast. I'm here with my guy, Mike Renner. We're starting our positional deep dives, position overviews with the quarterback class. Going to do superlatives, pros and cons for all the top quarterback prospects. We also interviewed NFL Media's Bucky Brooks. That was fantastic. First time on the podcast. And on the back end, I talked to UNC running back Javante Williams and Clemson wide receiver Amari Rogers. Let's get it. Buddy, there's only one way we're starting the podcast. We have to bring up how bad the mustache is right now. The mustache is down bad in terms of feedback. Oh. We went and played, you know, you, me, George, and one of your buddies went and played spike ball at my pool mm. at the apartment. This was. And, you know, it was a good time. Spike ball was rough. I didn't, we didn't win pool any games. Pool spike ball. Pool spike pool ball. ball. Pool, pool spike ball is fun. We Game didn't win a lot of games. But, you know, what happened after was there was a girl in the hot tub. We were kind of just chilling at the hot, hot tub. Girl in the hot tub who lived there. She was... Um, also living there and she was asking us where we're from and she's from mexico she's like oh you guys from the united states and everyone says yes and she's like she looks at me and she's like are you sure no no are you no, sure said, she said something like said, you look different you look different and i was like Fine. you guys are laughing at me and she's like you look italian i look like super mario in the hot tub it was bad dude so the mustache uh, that's one down you know yeah the mustache is back against one the strike you know i need positive feedback for the mustache to keep it going. Let him hear it. Let him hear it in the comments, guys. He I needs... need positive feedback because if another person kind of throws the, throws shade that way, it's going to be – I might have to shave it. I don't know. You know, I, I can't stand this much negative feedback. I don't know if it was definitely the mustache, though, that looked different. There could have been the hair going the hair on at that great. point. But so a number of different things could the have Mario factored hat. in. Oh, that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the, but you don't come back. I, if, difference a good thing, though. Yeah. Like if you, she you don't want to look positively. like, yeah, you don't want to look like everybody else. Right. <laughs> uh, t- a couple other highlights from the weekend before we jump into the quarterback superlatives. Uh, I am complete and utter trash at beer die sober. Sober. Yeah. I went in no, so, so no seltzers. Like, Hey, I got to work today. I just want to play, enjoy the sun. Yeah. And I was just like, I was overthinking each catch. Yeah. Your catch game was, it was off way off. I couldn't believe it. And then also you saw Pac-Man at clutch. No, I was. So I, I went out myself Saturday night cause I found out some news prior to that. Well, get to that at some other point that i was like okay i'm, I'm gonna go out i want to have a good weekend and my friends were going to go to clutch i'm like i really never want to step foot in clutch and then when they get there they told me pac-man jones and drake or patrick were there and i was like oh i could have done shots with pac-man again could have told him he's the best man cover corner man cover corner i've ever seen pac you're the best could have lied to him i would have pumped him up even harder this time you I'm throw like, bar stools better you, than anyone in Dion. <laughs> yeah um and then last highlight here do you have any updates on the dating oh yes life? okay i wanted to update so we haven't talked about it in a minute but there's something brewing i can't really say exactly what's going on this it'll be a story for a different time but there's something going on, and I blame you for it. And it's going to be it's quintessential in my dating life, but it is I blame you for the series of this events. This is what that happens when Exes listen to the podcast. No, nope. okay, this that's... is not my fault. <laughs> you, I, I want people want to know about you, okay? And if you, you know Exes are listening to the podcast, that's not my fault. We can't say for sure exactly what happened just yet. All I know is that if she if but you it's... can't fight through this, she wasn't worth it. Okay, okay? if she's listening to the pod. If you can't fight through this, you can't get through these rough patches, these rough waters, you're not worth it, okay? I don't care how hot you are. Sorry. 
just if you can't if you can't get through this, I'm sorry. Let's go. Let's talk about some quarterbacks. <laughs> let's get to the quarterback superlatives here on two for one draft. So you broke down superlatives for the quarterback class. So things like strongest arm, takes. best runner, best pocket presence, all that stuff. And then we're also going to do pros and cons for the day one and day two quarterbacks, and then highlight a handful of like these standout or notable day three quarterbacks on PFS Big Board right now. Let's start with the superlatives. Read them off. Yes. So strongest arm. I don't think this one's really a debate. I think it's Trey Lance. Now, the only guy I could see in argument four is Felipe Franks, but I'd rather have Trey. I'd just rather have Trey Lance's arm. He's also a lot younger. So, Trey Lance has the strongest arm, most accurate. Justin Fields. When we get to him, we'll throw some data behind those numbers to see why he's the most accurate. But I do think he is the most accurate of this bunch, the best runner. Trey Lance. This is why you fall in love with Trey Lance. He is the strongest arm, and he is the best runner among the quarterback group in this draft class. Best outside the pocket, Zach Wilson. I I think that is his selling point, is what he can do on the move. Creativity outside. He cut some inside the pocket in terms of the creativity he throws with, but that outside the pocket, that ability, that kind of Johnny Manziel-esque-ness to his game, special. Best pocket nice. presence. Can I throw Johnny Manziel in there? Okay, Johnny. Best off the field. You need to add that as a superlative. <laughs> best, best off, off the field. field, Johnny Manziel. Dude, that guy was living the dream. Not Jamarcus Russell. Is. Jamarcus Russell's off the field was like reckless. And, yeah. and Manziel's was too at some points, but I feel like it was more controlled than Russell. But his was also good because it's like promotional Johnny Manziel off the field. Like now he has like Baker Mayfield might be best following. off the field. Now he has like a following that he doesn't even need football. Like he can, he started some Cactus Jack golf uh, sportswear, golfwear. That. That's like his new venture, and he just has like because he has like a million and a half Instagram followers. Where he can just pump, pump it out. Baker Mayfield it. off the field, but, all those commercials. You know, he's collecting a check, and I think he has a sponsorship or some story tied to a cheesecake factory. I'm not sure what that one is, but I think there's something there. Is there? Come on, you don't know that reference? The cheesecake factory? When he got no. Okay, never mind. If you don't know the reference, I can't reference it. Is it The Office? I don't it's know. The we'll only see. show you watch. No, so. it's not The Office. Okay. Either way. All right. Best pocket presence here, Trevor Lawrence. I don't think that one's too hot of a take there. Best versus the Blitz, Mac Jones. That is, we got some stats on him coming later. When we talk about him, about how good he is quickly under pressure. And then the quickest decision maker in the class, a little bit off the beaten path, Davis Mills of Stanford. And again, we'll have some stats to back these numbers up. But those are our quick superlatives off the rip there. No Kellen Mond in there. Kellen Mond, uh, he's... We'll get to him. We'll, we'll get talk to him. Let's we'll start with Trevor Lawrence. He's been a, he's been a topic of a much debate, and I'm coming back and watched a little. I need to go back and watch more. I want to go back and watch 2018, because so we'll get to that at some point. But 2018, he had 28 big time throws. 2019, he had 12. 2020, he had 13. Like it was a different type of quarterback that he then transformed into. I just want to see exactly what we were working with back then that was different. All right, so now we're going to dive into the day one quarterbacks, offer some pros, cons, and some data on these guys. That's going to be Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, and Mac Jones. Starting with Trevor Lawrence, the guy that I think every NFL draft podcast, any radio show has talked about ad nauseum. But if we could sum them up into a pro, a key notable pro, and a key con, what is Trevor Lawrence? Yes, these are the draft guide pros and cons, which you can find if you... Go to PFS, subscribe, subscribe, and get a draft guide. Or if you leave that five-star review, next time, the next window for that is going to be in March, March 30th. So after that, we'll do another week of five-star reviews getting draft guides. But you can find these in the draft guide. His biggest pro is timing. Now, there's a lot of pros. There's a lot of good things he does on his tape. But I think if I had to boil it down to one, he gets the ball where it needs to go on time. 
throws an anticipation, throws route concepts the way they're written up on a whiteboard. That is his biggest pro. He's done that since fucking day one at Clemson. Biggest con, hard to find cons. That's his also his selling point there is there's not a thing that's really bad on his tape. He has had bouts of inaccuracy, namely the LSU game, the National Championship game. That's probably his biggest con is some of that has shown up at times on his tape. But honestly, this past year, he's third most accurate quarterback and throws 10-plus yards downfield, only fields and Jones more accurate. I, I don't really – and that's with the least amount of receiving talent he's played with at Clemson. Worst offensive line he's played with at Clemson to make that sort of leap in accuracy. He's good. Dude's good. How, how does it go wrong with Trevor Lawrence? I don't think that's a question that's – asked a ton but like how does how does it go bad and I know the like you talk about Trevor Lawrence's floor all the time he is going to be a very good quarterback in the NFL his floor is damn good but how does it not re- how does he not reach his ceiling in the NFL honestly like injuries that's probably the only way so he was 213 pounds as pro day and now some of that was not being able to lift with that shoulder injury but people talk about how skinny Lamar Jackson is Lamar Jackson's 212 6'2 Trevor Lawrence 6'6 213 that's a skinny dude uh, he's going to need to get a little bit stronger once he gets to the NFL. And I, I feel like he will. Obviously, he has the frame to do so. But that's probably that's the only real way I see injuries. That's it. Some people bring up, when I talk about Trevor Lawrence with other people, some people bring up the LSU game where you saw him kind of go down and press a little bit and you saw yeah, some mistakes. The and then also, the not, I think there's more to be said about the Clemson offensive coordinator situation where I think he couldn't participate in that game due to COVID or something along those lines that like that game script was ridiculous. You remember that the Clemson offense coordinator they had to like oh, switch out. Oh, yes. Coordinators, okay, right? yes. Yeah. Yeah. I get that's all. So I, I, I think that game, year. honestly, Trevor Lawrence looked good. I think the LSU game is yes. more representative of some of the cons I've seen where he's down, he's pressing, he's getting too aggressive, overconfident. Do you see that kind of translating to the NFL? Yeah. He was good this past year against Ohio state. Yes. He did not get put in a favorable situation. So they're running play action passes down three scores in the fourth quarter. And he's getting killed because of it yeah. because no one's biting on a play action mm-hmm. down three scores in the fourth quarter. So, And uh, I think I was talking to Amari Rogers, who's on today's show, and he mentioned something along the lines of like early in the week they they put in their first 10 or first 12, something like that. It's not even like a first 15 like the NFL. And so you get, and I remember the first 15 plays for Clemson were very good. And after that, like adjusting on the fly is where you started to see things yes. kind of come off the rails. Yeah, and they were just running way too much for how – they couldn't run the ball that game. It was literally, you had to put it on Trevor Lawrence, and they never did. They'd never let him go win it. So, All right, let's go ahead and jump to Zach Wilson. But before we do so, we forgot to shout this guy out. We're not wearing headphones today because we're not communicating with Quinn in the room. Quinn is out right now because yeah. his significant other has COVID-19. Mm-hmm. We're trying to stay safe here at PFF. But, Quinn, if you are listening to the pod, you're sorely you missed. But the good news is, quarterback class, Bengals aren't going to be involved. Exactly. For the first time... <laughs> Hope, but maybe ever that Hopefully they shouldn't ever. be involved in this quarterback class. They got their guy, so Quinn wasn't going to be jumping in too much. True. All so. right, Zach Wilson, number two. You uh, go ahead and list the pros and cons. Pros, biggest pro, off-platform arm talent. Biggest con, it's really un- untested under pressure. Last season, in his you know one-season wonder kind of thing, even though I pushed back against the one-season wonder, the guy was starting playing well as true freshman at BYU and then had the injuries in 2019, but only 79 pressure dropbacks within three seconds of the snap. A lot of his pressures came later than that, him holding the ball in the pocket. That was 63rd most in the country despite having the 23rd most dropbacks. Like, he just had a situation where, and a lot of those are via blitzes, unblocked guys. He had a situation where it was not, uh, didn't have to worry about his offensive line. You know, And when you don't have to worry about it, you can't, it's kind of the Baker Mayfield thing. You can't put a 
price tag or a value tag on peace of mind at the quarterback position, what that does for your ability to play that position. So we haven't seen him have to overcome an offensive line. What is your response to people saying Zach Wilson hasn't played anybody? Even Mel Kiper Jr. on his um, you know, broadcast to the media said something along the lines of he had a cupcake schedule. You know, like that's something that's going to be brought up with Zach Wilson a ton compared to these other guys. I mean, Justin Fields, Ohio State, Mac Jones of Alabama, yeah. Trevor Lawrence of Clemson. Why is that not a concern? I think that gives you one year in the NFL in terms of right away it might not be sort of as good as a guy who was tested, like a Joe Burrow. You're not going to be as good as Joe Burrow. Joe fa- faced all these good defenses and then comes in NFL ready. He also had like a ton of, because like they played so many damn games. Like he played over yeah. like, he had like over 700 dropbacks or something. Yeah. So you don't, you play a cupcake schedule, you get like one year of that transition. But then after a year of playing in the NFL and seeing the speed of the NFL, that's, you throw that out the window. Look at Josh Allen. Who did he play at Wyoming? You know, who, who are guy who did Brett Favre play at Southern Miss? It's you get a year of that transition. It just means your transition is going to be a little steeper than other guys. It's probably all that means, in my opinion. The other thing with Zach Wilson I wanted your opinion on is that I feel like the the judgment of him is up and down. Like Obviously, Chris Sims of NBC has him at number one. I think I saw other people have him at number four. Seth had him at number three. There's people you have him at number two. Like The jury is out in terms yeah. of like how good this kid is. Why do you think... Like so many people have wide ranging opinions on him. I saw Derek Clawson, who was a, like, I think, a quarterback analyst on Twitter that I follow, mentioned that he had not even the best, most exciting arm talent of anybody in this class. While you have a Chris Sims who played quarterback in the NFL saying he's got the best arm of anyone. Like, how do people misread this? How does this happen? <laughs> he does have, I mean, he has a very good arm. He had, what, that throw against Western Kentucky this year, 65 or so yards in the air. Just, and the way he throws it, it's a quick release. He has a quick release and, can throw it from pretty much any body angle. Um, that's his selling point is quick release, special throws, quick release, special throws is a, is a good, th- is a good starting point to have when translating to the NFL. And the other thing I go back to with him is he is legitimately skinny still. Like he will put on 10 to 15 more pounds in an NFL weight room. Reminds me a lot of, and I hate these comparisons, but it reminds me a lot of Aaron Rodgers yeah. coming out and that Aaron Rodgers was not physically developed coming out of Cal, was only 20 years old, I want to say, when he did get drafted. Put on about 20 pounds over the course of his first couple years in the NFL, and his arm was legitimately different then after putting on that weight. Putting on muscle like that at that age, you get more ball speed, you get more arm strength, and especially with the way he throws it, with that torque that he generates just from his upper body, the stronger you get, I think he can take his arm even to another level. You'll see year two, year three, it will be stronger. Now it's not Patrick Mahomes, it's not Josh Allen. That could be like that. But it, it is very talented. And the way he throws it is just different because it's going to, like I said, translate to a lot of different areas in the NFL that you can utilize that in. That was Derek Clawson, by the way, at QB Class, who does work for Football Outsiders and NBC Sports. And he's mentioning, you know, that Zach Wilson doesn't even have the most talented arm of the big four. While others see it, I, I just don't. I, I mean, like, I think Trey Lance does. Yeah. As we said that off the top. That's, I, I do think it's interesting, though, that like you can have a lot of, and I think it speaks to overall evaluation. I've had my take heard on draft evaluation being somewhat overrated at this point, but a lot of opinions I respect. Yours. I would put Chris Sims in that conversation. Thank you. Seth Galina. 
Derek Clawson, Benjamin Solak, uh, Todd McShay. You know, these guys have been doing it for a long time, and it's just across the board. Like, you know, they're all watching the same dropbacks. They're all watching the mm-hmm. same film. And some guys have them first. Some guys have fourth, fifth. They're, it's, it's interesting to see just, like, wide-ranging opinions from a lot of, like, legit, like, sources, like, legit yeah. sources of opinion. I think it speaks to overall, like, Zach Wilson is a projection. Zach Wilson, what he yeah. is now is not what you're banking off him being in the NFL. You need to see him hit this. Yeah you know, proverbial ceiling in the NFL. But then he um, also, what he is now was the highest great quarterback. You know? The highest great quarterback we've seen. And now he didn't play, like, didn't play anybody, but then you can still judge the throws. The throws were, throws were better than anyone else's this past year. That's why you can have him number one is because the throws that he made were better than anyone else's this year. And you look at grading from a clean pocket this past year of any quarterback in college football with 100 dropbacks in a clean pocket. Highest grade quarterback, Zach Wilson, 23 big time throws, only four turnover worthy plays, like absolutely absurd from a clean pocket this past year. All right. Now jumping to QB three for PFF, Justin Fields of Ohio State, not just another Ohio State quarterback. This guy was a former five star and according to ESPN, the better recruit than Trevor Lawrence coming out of Georgia. And he goes to obviously the University of Georgia to start and then transfers to Ohio State and He's been up there with Zach Wilson in grading over the past two, three years, 90-plus grading over the past two years, and also the most accurate quarterback over the past two years from a clean pocket. That's how good Justin Fields has been. This is not a Dwayne Haskins. This is not a JT Barrett. Don't scout the helmet. This is a different quarterback coming out of Ohio State. Yeah, and we asked Bucky Brooks later, how many quarterbacks would you take number one overall any other year? We'll, we'll let you wait to see what his answer is. Mine is this is those these three. Any other year, there's no other quarterbacks that exist. You haven't went over pick, you need a QB. I would take one of these three, number one overall, easily. Trey Lance, that's conversation. If there's a Penny Sewell there on the board versus Trey Lance, I might go Penny Sewell if I need both. like that, Because that guy is a certainty at that position, at the tackle position. And then like certainty, that guy three years from now can net you two first-round picks. They still People still value that position super highly, and it saves you a lot of money. And you can find a quarterback sometimes elsewhere. But these three guys I just feel very good about. And the stat with Justin Fields this past year targets 10-plus yards downfield that were ball-charted as accurate, 65.1%. Not only the highest college football, number two was 56.8%. Highest college football by almost nine percentage points. He, he can put it where he wants to down the field. Athletic, I can chase down Trey Sermon from behind in the what game was that early in the year, maybe the Rutgers game. Mm-hmm. Chase down was running back from behind. Now, Trevor Lawrence said that too, but Trevor Lawrence is also a freak. So, has accuracy and running ability to that level, I think the play speed will come. The stat that we go back to, the non-blitzed average time to throw, 3.05 seconds. His blitzed average time to throw, 3.18 seconds. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in the NFL. you got to get quicker. That that has your your internal clock has to speed up at that level. And I think... I would bet on a guy fixing that before I bet on a guy fixing accuracy. It just Yes, Josh Allen did it, but it's not a lot of guys throughout NFL history that have fixed accuracy, and Justin Fields has that level of accuracy. So I just, I, any other year, like I said, he could be the number one overall pick. 
what tier of runner do you put him in? I think we talk a lot about Justin Fields' accuracy, yeah. and then what's quickly brought up after that is like his decision-making, slow processing, some of that where like he holds the ball too long. Yeah. Not necessarily slow processing more, but I think I see it more as like the Deshaun Watson problem sometimes, where yeah. he's holding the ball too long because he thinks he's a superhero. Not that he's processing slow, but actually like I can get a better throw or I can move something past. I think some of that was like, like I said, the against the blitz stuff, he was slow to recognize blitzes. Mm-hmm. But then there is that there is a it's a twofold where it's like yes he thinks he can always save a play yeah yeah but so what what do you put him in from a tiers perspective because I've seen him compared okay. to Cam Newton like what what kind of runner yeah, yeah. is Justin Fields what are you getting purely as a runner so I think tier ones Kyler Murray Lamar Jackson those guys don't come around every year as a runner there's no one in this class I put in that tier as a runner I'd put him in the tier two of Jalen Hurts Cam Newton more battering ram. You're going to use them you're like you're going to use them in the run game. You may not give them more than a few runs in a game, but that option threat is going to help you a lot. Like you're not going to build your whole running game around them, but you're going to utilize that option threat a lot, and you're going to utilize it in short yardage, and you're going to utilize it near the goal line, and it's going to be very valuable. It is in those situations very valuable to have. So it's going to be something that comes into play, but it is not. Like I said, I don't think any guys in the special tier. Lance is close because I think he can do, I think you can do like power run game stuff with him and really lean on it with how and just. You've compared Lance to like, Taysom Hill in terms yeah, of like a yeah, runner. Like that. Like you can really, and how the Saints kind of just flipped their script on the run game once Taysom Hill was their quarterback. And that was, he was involved in everything they did. So I, I think he's just a slightly below Trey Lance. So you brought up that stat of 10 plus yards, you know, how how accurate was um, Justin Fields. Number one in the country, nine percentage points better than everyone. I went back to Dwayne Haskins, 2018 season. He's 20%, 20 percentage points lower in that yes. same stat at 45%. Do not, I mean, that, it's a, it's a, the only comparison. Ranks outside the top 40. Like Dwayne Haskins compare. was not anywhere close yeah. to what Fields was accurate from an accuracy perspective. The only like mid comparison you can make between those two is that they both had a lot of talent around them at the receiver position. That's, and they both play that's about <laughs> it. Like that is really about it. Cause Dwayne Haskins ran that offense completely differently. The amount of screens they threw then the amount of crossing routes they threw then the I mean, Terry McLaurin, get Terry McLaurin top 15 receiver in the NFL from day one, almost Dwayne Haskins did not utilize him because he could not throw accurately down the field the way Justin Fields did. If, Ter- if Justin Fields had Terry McLaurin, Terry McLaurin probably would have been a first-round pick, you know? But Dwayne Haskins just did not utilize him because that's not where his strengths lied. I mean, here's your lied. quote graphic, Lay. social team. Stop comparing Justin Fields to Dwayne Haskins. They're completely different players. Yeah. All right, Trey Lance, number four. He's number four on your list. Go ahead and go pros, cons here. Yeah, I mean, the pros, we straight up, okay, so pros are physical tools. We just said, he's the strongest arm in this class. He's the best runner in this class. It's a good starting point when you're playing the quarterback position, when you can basically sling the ball 70 yards downfield in a flick and you can be an entire run game on your own. And that's what he was at North Dakota State, over 1,000 yards back in 2019. Cons the accuracy. And now we said 65.1% on 10-plus yards for Justin Fields. The number is 36.3 over the past year in this past game for Trey Lance. So we're talking about a different level. Now, Josh Allen... 39.5 39.5 this last year at Wyoming. Very similar range. Now, still worse than Josh Allen is a little concerning. But <laughs> that's, where you, that's where you're at if you are. And now he doesn't have receivers that can get open. Like, he's not throwing into necessarily the same windows that Wilson fields are down the field. 
but that's a that's a concern. That is where he has to improve. But I think you've seen the leaps and bounds improvements from a two-star recruit to then a year later being the best FCS quarterback bar none, like putting on 20 to 30 pounds at North Dakota State, completely transforming himself. And so you fall in love with the athlete and hope that you can mold him into something. PFF's Anthony Tresh and, and some other analysts see Mac Jones ahead of Trey Lance, and his biggest reason for that is Lance's accuracy, specifically yeah. downfield, and that same stat you bring up. My counter to it, and I still don't, you know, I still think there's there's reason to split hairs with Trey Lance and Mac Jones. I like taking Lance over Jones because you're chasing a higher ceiling than you are, but I understand why the, not everyone's on that same boat. I understand why the other analysts have different opinions there, but my counter is the NFL has found ways to win with inaccurate quarterbacks that have other special abilities like Trey Lance's arm and his rushing ability. If you can build an offense that caters to those two strengths, his freakish arm talent, his off-platform throws, and him being a good dominant runner at the FCS level, you can win. Lamar Jackson has been the most inaccurate quarterback downfield of any since entering the league and still won league MVP because, and I'm not saying Lance is in Jackson's tier as an athlete or as a runner, but you have to get close to that though. Like Carson Wentz is right next to like right next to Lamar Jackson from an accuracy perspective, but he doesn't win other ways. Like yeah. he's not a, like a dynamic athlete and they're not building an offense around his rushing ability. You have to build an offense around Trey Lance that caters to his rushing ability to maximize his potential. And I think that's the biggest sort of transition quarterback evaluations. It used to be this guy is going to go to my offense, mm-hmm. my West Coast yeah. offense, my and Bucky brings this up whatever later. offense that I run that I've ran for the last 20 years. He's going to come in and I'm going to plug in. How does he fit in my offense? Now it's I got this guy. How do I create like he has these tools? He has these things to work with. How do I create a situation to emphasize those, to take advantage of those? Because schemes are so much more flexible and, and office coordinators have realized that it's the creativity, the ones who are willing to cater around the ones they got, the talent they have that are really the ones succeeding in the NFL today. So uh, that's why everyone says situation matters. Are you going to a situation like that where they're going to build it around you and build, give you the talent that can make you help you win? Or are you going to a situation where it's my scheme? If you don't fit, well, shit, we're going to, it's not going to work out. And, and you'll get to the Bucky Brooks interview later in here, but in this podcast, but Jordan Palmer has brought up situation a ton. You see Orlovsky bring up situation a ton on Twitter and Bucky brings up like the, the NFL has changed in terms of coaches are more willing to bring in a guy and adapt the system to them than they were in previous years. And I think that's, he brings up other things like, tell me what he can do. Don't tell me what he can't do. Cause what he can do, I'll build the offense around. Yeah. You know, what he can't do, I have to get rid of. I have to find ways to hide that. Yeah. You know, if he can't be accurate downfield, I have to find ways to limit those opportunities. It's just like Lamar Jackson trying to fit balls into tight windows. It's like, okay, we have to create more open throws for him. We have to find ways to create more open throws. Did, it, did that phrasing not look great? Uh, it's, it's, it's I don't I don't really remember what maybe I said. Maybe smile. But. Okay. Uh, let's get to Mac Jones. Yes. Go ahead. Okay, biggest pro. <laughs> Underneath accuracy. He was, within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage, the most accurate quarterback in college football this past season. 82.5% of his passes in that range deemed accurate. Next closest was 78.5%. That was Justin Fields. And he's just operates that offense – I mean, obviously better than anyone else has operated college football offense like up there with Joe Burrow from last year. Now they played, they didn't face the defense that Burrow played. I think his job was a little bit easier than what Burrow's was, but he didn't make a ton of mistakes and he was damn good. And the stat I have here is when he was pressured within three seconds of the snap, he had the highest passing grade in the country. 
That is where you want guys to win. 85.9 passing grade when pressure within three seconds of snap. When it was bad quickly or when he had a blitz, blitzer, unblocked blitzer come free, he was still very good. And you see that quick processing on his tape repeatedly. That's how he has to win. Mm-hmm. So if you're a guy who doesn't have a strong arm, can't make create outside the pocket, isn't going to be an option threat in the running game, you have to do that. You have to do all those. You have to be perfect in all those other areas. And that's why we loved Joe Burrow and said he was. And Mac Jones's tape is just not as thorough as Burrow's was, in my opinion, in terms of like showing all those things. But he could be like he it just because he hasn't shown it doesn't mean he necessarily isn't going to be at the next level. And I do think that someone's going to fall in love with this guy. I mean, I talking with more people around the league, someone's going to fall in love because that's that's the way quarterback like those were the quarterbacks that went high for. 30 years prior to this now maybe not necessarily with his arm strength but it was the guys that really were the quick operators of a passing offense that have been coveted and i think someone's going to want him at the helm for them i mean look at some of the most accurate quarterbacks in the nfl this past season number one drew Brees. number three jared goff number four and this is from a clean pocket kirk cousins number seven joe burrow number 12 Derek carr like these guys that don't necessarily have that high end in their game like these, like Drew Brees mm. definitely didn't have that downfield big yeah. playability in this game. But if you're accurate and a quick processor, you can be in an offense that can win, mm. especially if you're surrounded with a very talented supporting cast. And he had that at Alabama. Yeah. And I think the, the, the argument we keep bringing up with Mac Jones is if you do get him in the first round and you have that fifth year option, cost controlled quarterback for five years, plus a year over the tag if you want to do yeah. that, you can spend that other resource, draft capital and free agency cap on talented players to build around a field general game man i think game manager is condescending i don't ever want to i don't ever want to say game manager again it's not a game manager that is an alex smith or whatever offense manager i don't think it's managing anything like managing makes it feel like you're not doing that well i don't know like managing expectations you're my manager yeah well either way i don't like manager (laughs) but i think i like field general better field general where like you are you're calling the shots you're like in control and you're not necessarily like doing any of the big plays. You got guys doing yeah. big plays for you, but you're a field general in that quick to process, make really good decisions with the football and accurate every single time. Yeah. I don't think paying that guy $40 million a year gets you close because then you have to, then you ruin his supporting cast. Yeah. But keeping him on a cost controlled contract as a rookie, like that's why I do like the fit to San Francisco. It's why I do like the fit to New Orleans. Like Mac Jones going to one of those teams where they have a good coach. They have a decent supporting cast and can add capital, you know, add more resource there. I honestly think Mac Jones is a first rounder. I get more and more on board with it. Yeah, because I have, I think I've said before, it's like, is his ceiling Kirk Cousins? And that sounds almost derogatory, but if you had Kirk Cousins on a rookie deal right now, you could probably win a Super Bowl. Yes. And like probably you should be able to at least build a team that's close to competing for a Super Bowl. With good coaching and a good supporting cast. Yeah. Like you're not getting there with bad coaching. You never do. And, like, yeah, so. obviously. But. Yeah, so maybe I have to allow Mac Jones in that regard in terms of I think where he when push. You, at 33 is what's interesting because I do think, and we talked to Eric Eager on the Sirius XM show, and he brought up like when he'd take a running back, it's like the earliest you take like Adrian Pierce in his prime is 33 because that fifth year option is very important. You know, I think fifth year option for some of these highly paid positions like tackle, quarterback, 
edge rusher. Like that's why getting some of these guys like a Mac Jones in the first mm -hmm. round, making sure he doesn't fall to day two where you only get those four years, I think can be really important. I mean, that's kind of why it forced the Las Vegas Raiders to be kind of a year early on Derek Carr. I mean, he was a second round pick. Yeah. Like you, you had to kind of move quickly on that extension compared to other guys. Um, so I do think it's interesting. And um, Mac Jones, I think, should be a first rounder. I think his draft prop right now is at 18 and a half. I think he goes inside of that. I think he goes inside the top too. 15 I think picks. he goes underneath that. All right, let's go to day two now. So day two, are you maneuvering the process here? Or are we going to still do pro and con for every day two guy? We do pros and cons for every day two let's guy. Let's do it. Let's, let's start with Kyle Trask. Let's we'll run through those day two guys we have in the mix here. Kyle Trask of Florida, Davis Mills of Stanford, and Kellen Mott of Texas A&M. I think the guys who should be in the day two mix probably will be when it's all said and done, if not going earlier. Um, so Kyle Trask, his biggest pro is he is – exceptional at maneuvering pockets. Florida did not have a great offensive line this year. He did not have Bama's offensive line, though he was putting up you know similar numbers to Mac Jones there in the SEC. It's because Khan, though, is mobility. He, is, he can maneuver the pocket. He cannot break the pocket. He cannot give you much outside of that. They used him in the running game. I don't know why, because it didn't really do much for them in there. So that's his biggest pro and con. I know people like to point to the, Alabama, or excuse me, the Oklahoma game in the bowl without his talent there. But it was really the one out route. It was that one shitty out route that I was at a, ended up in a pick six or whatever. Um, the other two picks where one was his wide receiver uh, overran the zone and he put it where it should have been and the, the wide receiver didn't stop in the middle of the field. And the other one is he got hit on a fade route that ended up then coming up short. So it looked way worse stat line than I feel like he actually played when going back and watching it. And let's come back to the kind of upward trajectory trajectory that we see from this guy was solid if unspectacular back in 2019 when he came in his very first year starting not even like i said having started back in high school we've talked about that a bunch he was behind dear king there on his high school team and then took a massive step forward and 41 big time throws this past season only 13 turnover worthy plays protected the ball very well for you know, a volume passing offense. And I just like, I like his creativity that he plays a position with in terms of throwing guys open, giving Kyle Pitts chances. A lot of Kyle Pitts touchdowns are contested catches, that sort of thing. And it takes two to tango when it's, especially in the red zone and plays like that. A lot of quarterbacks aren't willing to take those chances. Kyle Trask is. And so I just think he's interesting. I'm not going to take him the first round. But and I'm breaking my rule of saying you know don't draft quarterbacks outside the first round because the NFL is usually good at evaluating. But I just think there's still kind of an unknown with him that I'd take him in the third. Maybe I, have, I have a comment and then I want to drop a stat. One, okay. and I was talking to I think it was either Tannenbaum on the Sirius Show or another former scout or something, and they were saying recency bias is so big in media and like media, evals, eva yeah. media evaluation of draft prospects. You remember? You mean, mean Devonte Smith was not going number two to the Jets? <laughs> Do you remember when Justin Fields had that like somewhat bad game against Northwestern? And like it was they, pretty bad. It was bad. It was okay. bad. But like Don't there were me. people who were tweeting out like, "Is this kid even a first rounder after that game?" And then you, you another thing to bring up is this Kyle Trask one, where obviously looked bad. Kyle Pitts was in there. It's like, oh, he can't play without the supporting cast. Like, he went from like first rounder in a lot of mocks to literally like people yeah. forgot who he was. Like recency bias is massive specifically for media when they're evaluating draft prospects. And I think that's highlighted by guys like Trask and, and that Justin Fields game after Northwestern. The other mm -hmm. thing, highest graded power five quarterbacks from a clean pocket in 2020, Mac Jones, Justin Fields, Kyle Trask, 
Trevor Lawrence, Sam Howell. Those are the, or no, Spencer Rattler, then Trevor Lawrence. So he's third, right ahead of Rattler and right ahead of Lawrence. Like he had a damn good season yeah. in 2020. He should be factored in into this. Maybe doesn't have some of the mobility or the traits that you want, the quarterback position, but played some damn good football, like that tier. And I think originally, before that really bad game, tell me he wasn't in that same tier with Mac Jones. Like Mac Jones and Trask were talked about of these two guys that aren't in that top four tier, but are guys that played a lot of good college football in a good conference in 2020. Yeah. And he's not he's not nearly as accurate as Mac Jones is yeah. the other thing. He's not that level to where you can buy in. But I do think he has a stronger arm than Mac Jones. So it's an interesting debate at that point. So you see Kyle Trask's accuracy percentage, according to PFF, from a clean pocket in 2020 was 30th at 65%. Mac Jones was first at 75 And that's all throws yeah. from a clean pocket. So literally like 20 percentage points better than what uh, Trask brought to the table, but still, or 10 percentage points better than what Mac Jones brought to the table. All right, let's jump off of Kyle Trask and go to Davis Mills. Davis Mills, Stanford quarterback. Biggest pro is quick decision-making. The guy is... Guy gets the ball in his hand. He operates a pro-style offense. Biggest con, literally off-platform anything I wrote here. He doesn't, if it's not within the offense, if it is not quick out of his hand, I don't think he did anything with the ball. Like, he just wasn't. He's his, he averaged 2.39 second average time to throw on throws that were not RPOs, not screens, not play action. That was the fastest of any player in the country. Oh, wow, that's a good stat. It's a tenth of a second faster than Trevor Lawrence. At 2.49 seconds, Mac Jones was at 2.61 seconds. You know, quick processor Mac Jones, two tenths of a second slower. Kellamon 2.61. He and Book up at 3.3, which is like comedic in, ret- in like comparing the two. Um, but the dude gets it out of his hands quickly. Former five star, he was the number one quarterback in the class of 2017. Ahead of Tua, ahead of Jake Fromm, ahead of Tate Martell, the legend, and ahead of Kellamon also as well. So he. Only started 10 games at Stanford. Was a four or five star. I don't know why the hell he came out this year. Did not, in this ridiculously loaded draft class, really should have stayed one more year to see what he could have done at Stanford with one more year. But I just think that's an interesting profile to work with. Something I'll say. So everyone brings up with Davis Mills, and I think you've done a really good job of highlighting how good this kid is despite not seeing a ton. Yeah. He had 491 dropbacks in his collegiate career. Trey Lance had 100 fewer. So like people were talking about sample size. Yeah. It's like Davis Mills, you have More. 491 drop box, drop drop box, dropbacks on tape. Like go back Trey Lance, he averaged 18.3 dropbacks a game even the year he played yeah. and obviously only had that one game against Central Arkansas. Like there's okay, it's still so, small sample sizes for both, but like don't use that as your calling card. If you're going to put a con on Davis Mills, it's the stuff you said about the off-platform anything. Like the stuff where outside of structure those things you're not yeah. seeing it. Like but Again, sample size, I still don't think it's like as big of a concern as people are making it. Go grade, mm-hmm. go evaluate the dropbacks you saw. And, I mean, you, you, you factor in the former five-star, you factor in this processing. I do agree that that's a day-two quarterback I'm swinging the bat on. Yeah, and it's he, he did not play with the talent around him at Stanford that other guys did in this draft class at the quarterback position. And when you're throwing quickly, oftentimes you're relying on guys to win. You know, guys have to win quickly to throw quickly oftentimes. And so when you don't have that, it looks a lot worse or like your stats may look worse than when you do have that. So just kind of an interesting name. In you said two. that for both Trask and Yeah, Davis that's Mills. why they're day two quarterbacks, all right, Austin? Every quarterback that goes in day two. No, but I, I, so I have a follow-up yeah. there. So you brought up, and I think it's a good point, that, you know, I don't advise um, taking quarterbacks on day two because the quarterbacks, I mean, NFL is really good at evaluating. However, what situation do you have to be in as a team 
to where you feel like you should draft a quarterback on day two? Because I think that's the more interesting conversation, to use your word. Um, I, <laughs> I do think that, like, what are you a team with a good quarterback already? Do you have a young quarterback that you're not sure of? Because, like, I feel like that's where teams don't – I think that's where fans maybe don't understand, like, when do you take a quarterback on day two? I don't think it's when you need one. That's for damn sure. Yeah. I think it's when it's when you either have one or you think you have one, right? Yeah. If it, Like, if you're the Patriots, I don't think it behooves you at all to draft a quarterback on day two and, and make him the guy. Which is interesting to hear you say because I've said maybe the Patriots should take a quarterback on day two because they should tank. You know, like that's And, like, you might as well throw a Jamie Newman out there for 16 games rather than take mm-hmm. this quote-unquote bridge quarterback that wins you accidentally four or five games. Yeah, I, I do think it's – it is an interesting conversation that I don't I don't have a great answer for. When do you take these guys on day two? I or even day three, because we're going to talk about the day three class as well. It's like when do it's you... when the value makes sense, Austin. That's when it always is. Oh, sorry. Trust I the apologize. Board. All right, let's get to Kellen Mond. Let's get to Kellen Mond, yes. So Kellen Mond, pro, the pro-style experience. That offense, what he's doing in it, translatable to what he'll probably be doing in it. The Jimbo experience. Yes, the Jimbo experience. That sounds... Mm, not like an experience I'd like to go through. I'm all about it. But you're the Jimbo guy. Okay, yeah. Um, probably better than the Jim Bob experience, the Jim Bob Cooter. Um, <laughs> the pro-style experience, though, the biggest con was consistency downfield. And like I said off the top there, 28 big-time throws, 2018. 13, then the next year. Then 12 this past year. Then he goes to the senior bowl and has six big-time throws in that game alone. And that's – he was, in my opinion, the most impressive quarterback down the senior bowl. Mac Jones was there. Ian Book was there, and he was the most impressive quarterback over the week of practice and through the game. And it's difficult to – it's the problem we've always run into here at PFF. How do you differentiate the quarterback from their situation, from the talent around them? How do you isolate what he is exactly doing versus what those guys are doing? Because, again, like I said, if your office line is getting their ass kicked, you can't put a value on what that does to you mentally. If wide receivers can't get open and you have no guy that you trust to win down the field, you can't put a number on how that affects your decision-making and your ability to take chances with the football down the field, which he obviously didn't do this past year much. So he's athletic. He can add on to your run game. I don't think he's quite to Justin Fields or Trey Lance's level, but he is definitely a guy you can run with. And... He's very experienced at this point, three years, and he did not have a great supporting cast. He will not. He didn't. His last receiver that got drafted out of Texas Tech was 2017 Christian Kirk, and that was his freshman year he played with him. Hasn't played. He had Jay Sturmberger drafted tight end since then. Might have Jamon Osmond drafted this year, but Jamon Osmond didn't play in 2020. Did not have a receiving talent, and you're playing the SEC without receiving talent. You're, you're fucked. Like that's <laughs> like the corner central. Like every good cornerback, not every good cornerback. A lot of good cornerbacks play in the SEC. A lot of good safeties play in the SEC. You got to have guys that can get open. You really didn't have that for the mass, vast majority of his career. So it's an interesting conversation around Calamond. <laughs> how interesting is it? Uh, everything's interesting. <laughs> well, okay, so wait. Uh, how, can you break down what, what's your opinion of Calamond's arm talent? Just his arm talent. I think it's. I think it's a. It's better than Mac Jones's. It's probably better than Davis Mills's. It's not, I think Fields, Wilson, Lawrence, Lance are all better, though. I think it's probably, like Kyle Trask, him and Kyle Trask, I think have similarly strengthed arms. 
that how you would say that? I think so. That's how I said it. Uh, that's great. Uh, so you remember I was bringing up some stats about like clean pocket grade and that stuff. You had this past year, Mac Jones, Justin Fields, Kyle Trask, Rattler, and Trevor Lawrence rank top five in clean pocket passing grade. Kellen Mond this past year, in his career best year, 26th. And I think the more interesting stat is the accuracy. You know, Right now, Mac Jones, 75%, number one. He ranks 74th yeah. at 59%. That is, and that's, he's not particularly accurate. That is, Consistency downfield is also accuracy downfield. It yeah. was not particularly accurate down the field. But you know who else wasn't that accurate down the field? Dak Prescott coming out of Mississippi State really was not his thing. Kind of still hasn't really been in the pros, but he's been fine without it. So, All right, let's get to day three now. I'm going to bring up the day three names that you have listed here, and we'll just highlight the notables, the notable guys, some yeah. notable things on these guys. So Jamie Newman of Wake Forest slash Georgia, never actually played a down for Georgia, down for but uh, opted out of the 2020 season. You have Sam Ellinger, who I think has been playing at Texas since 2010. I'm still trying to figure that out. He's, I was going to say, he hasn't been playing there as long as Shane Bouchelle, though. Oh, yeah, and then you have the Shane Bouchelle, who's been playing in Texas since, yeah. like, probably 2000, 2000 flat. He's, yeah. a, he's a Texas boy, went to SMU as well after Texas. And then Felipe Franks, who single farthest throw in PFF charting history. And also, like, I would say, yeah. and we don't bring this adjective up a lot, cool, the coolest throw I've ever seen in the cleans level. It is absolutely sick. The, the Hail, Hail Mary, Mary is against Tennessee. Dope. Was it 2017 or 2018? One of those years. I can't remember exactly which one. Dude, but it was the part of 74 yards. I think it was 74 yards from throw to catch point. Absolute bomb. YouTube it, right now, Felipe Franks, you Hail Mary. It. I mean, it was like a all over back when it did happen. Well, but it was a while it, ago. Go get it. Yeah. Go get it. And then last two names here, Ian Book of the Fighting Irish. I think okay. Brady Quinn's number one quarterback. We're going to have him on the podcast soon. Uh, Brady Hopefully. Quinn's I'll never forget. If, for Quinn. those, We've had a lot of new listeners come on to the pod. Yeah. We had Brady Quinn on the Combine last episode Combine. last year. Mm-hmm. And before we get on, talking to Brady Quinn, or Mike and, and Brady are talking. And Mike is like an asshole, not introduced me to him yet. So I'm just standing there like looking like an idiot. These two guys are just like fucking living it up about the Notre Dame Rec Center or whatever. And then I go to introduce myself like, oh, I'm Austin. We're going to be on the podcast together. He's like... First thing he says to me, where'd you go to school? I was like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> like, this matters? It's like San Diego State. He's like, oh, 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 oh. It was bad, dude. It and was he didn't bad. talk to you again after No, that. I didn't. He's not. He's, he doesn't follow me back on Twitter. It, it, it's rough to see. And if you go back and watch that episode, we have it on YouTube. He's literally leaning and looking at you the whole time. Like, I'm just like this third-party idiot on the side. <laughs> Brady Quinn hey, is like you in a lot of ways. Don't stick together. Except he's he's a little bit more of a hardo than I am. He's a little bit more intense. I'm a little easier going. I give him the shit for he might not come back on the podcast. He was roasting podcasts the other day. Oh wow! I had to, I had to put. Why him is he place. roasting podcasts? He's jealous though. We have. I know, but what's the what's the what's the boomer argument against podcasts? I don't know. He's getting up there in age. He's yeah. That's he's, what I, was about to say. I mean, he's on he's on radio. Should I should we have some discourse about radio? <laughs> I heard that's thriving. I heard radio is like going through the roof. People are going back. Sometimes back I get radio. home and I go into my car to listen to radio, you know, because I just don't have the. It's just such a good. I turn experience. on my boombox. Yeah, I mean. Anyway, last quarterback on day three you wanted to mention was Peyton Ramsey. Uh, walk me through these guys. Okay. So, not a great list. Just I'm say still that. laughing at him hating on podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Newman was a guy we just like wish we would have seen more because that Wake Forest offense was kind of just not great. And he looked like shit this year at the senior bowl. Just really did. Just led the throughout the week of practice had the most turnover worthy plays and the game had the most turnover worthy plays consistently late and that's what we wanted to see he has he has tools he has probably the best tools of these guys listed here even though Felipe Franks has a cannon I don't love his Felipe Franks tools guy can't throw with touch to save his life watch him throw with touch is it's like that uh 
in baseball when like someone first learns how to throw a curveball and they were just like tipping it so hard. It looks so different from their normal throwing motion. That's what Felipe Franks looks like trying to throw a touch. He just like loses his shit. So Jamie Newen can do those things. He is the Brady Quinn award winner for most Jack quarterback in the draft class. The dude is loaded up six foot four, two thirty, can run a little as well. So you got something to work with there, but man, I just, after not having seen him this year, I, I don't know how you draft him any higher than like the fifth round, sixth round with, uh, after that senior bowl performance, Sam Ellinger, uh, honestly, did you see the throw on Twitter that went around last week? We even retweeted it. 77 yards, his claim. He claimed it was 77 yards. He throws it on a field that only goes about 30 yards, and then it just a guy catches it in the middle of like an open park. It was one of the most ridiculous claims. It's also you can see his shirt blowing in the wind because it's so windy out, and all it just says is 77 yards. That ball maybe traveled 60 yards. That was one of the most ridiculous things as a prospect he doesn't have a strong, like, does not have that strong of an arm. I mean, th- that is 77 yards is absurd with what he put on tape this past year at Texas, unless he started taking steroids, which, hey, if you're going to be a day three pick, I, I don't see the downside there. Um, you're can suggesting I day like three picks to take steroids? <laughs> Walk that quote back, okay. please. <laughs> JK, that was the joke. Just kidding, guys. Um, Shane Bouchelle, only thing I wanted to bring up about Shane Bouchelle is he was the starter in the OG Texas is back folks game that test Joe Testor, I think was he the announcer of that one could have been after they beat Notre Dame sadly um and he says you know who is it there was the Ricky Seals Jones runs in the touchdown Texas is back folks that's not like a meme about Texas being back because that was so long ago that was Shane Bouchelle started that game first game is true freshman then he went to SMU uh, he's just inaccurate. That's just—he's undersized, inaccurate. He may not get drafted. Ian Book, I didn't want to take him seriously as a prospect. I still remember 2017 when he came in against Miami in that brutal game, the turnover chain, which was the most. Oh God, that like you saw when Miami pulled out the turnover chain in that game against Notre Dame. It's the most demoralizing feeling. Just seeing them celebrate on the sideline, you're, you can't do the anything Miami about it. Miami turnover worthy chain, turnover worthy, <laughs> turnover chain, kind of. Not changed college football, but it was heavily impacted college football, and that like every college now has like has some something. form of touchdown something. I know Cincinnati here at the University of Cincinnati. Every time someone scores, they bang a drum six times, yeah. and if they get a turnover, they dunk a basketball into like this moving fucking thing. Like there's like a turn. There's a bunch of random things now in college football, and I, and I respect it. College football should be fun. It should be ridiculous like that. Yeah. So. That game. If you're not going to pay them. I mean, if you're not going to pay the athletes, you might as well make it kind of funny, right? My college roommate came into town that weekend. We were watching the game at what was Lachey's. Lachey's closed. Nick Lachey's bar. It was actually the best sports bar in the city. Dude, now it's opinion. a pizza place. Now it's a pizza place. Um, watching the game there. And at halftime, we're like, do we even want to watch second half? No, we just go to another bar. And I think we took like three shots at Ryan House. And that was, that was lights out. Didn't want to remember the first half either. So that's what we tried to do there. But Book is just he's slow like to make decisions, like so slow. Like I said, that 3.3 seconds on non-RPOs, non-play action, that's just absurd. And he, he was afforded that because Notre Dame had a ridiculously good pass-tracking offensive line. That's not going to be the case in the NFL. Um, and he was like scrambling at the senior bowl in the practices still. And again, not athletic to get away with that in the NFL. I, I don't see him as much more than a fringe draftable prospect. Payton Ramsey's interesting. Four years as a starter between Indiana and Northwestern. Not necessarily known for, you know, powerhouse quarterback talent, but he doesn't have particularly great tools. Another guy who's probably a fringe draftable quarterback.
Love there it. you have it. There you have it. There you have the day three quarterbacks. The entire time I was thinking about Brady Quinn disrespecting podcasts and it reminded me of that quote from Michael Scott in the episode where the office episode where he goes to the business school and someone asks him like, hey, how's a paper business really surviving in like an increasingly paperless world? And he's like, we can't overestimate the value of computers. They're great for playing games, but real business is done on paper. And it's like, everyone's like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's that's Brady Quinn radio. being upset yeah. with podcasts and suggesting radio. Regardless, um, let's go ahead now after a fantastic breakdown of the quarterback prospects, we're going to go and talk to NFL media Bucky Brooks. Now joining the 241 Drafts podcast is NFL Network's Bucky Brooks. This has been a much-anticipated interview. We've been really looking forward to getting you on the podcast. We've had your podcast co-host, Daniel Jeremiah, on a ton. He has been a quote-unquote friend of the podcast, but it's great to have you on, Bucky. Thanks for joining. No, thanks for having me on. It's funny because I, I just listened to one of your recent ones where you guys were talking about quarterbacks and the like. So it, it was interesting. I can't remember who you who you brought on as your guest, but um, it was, it's always interesting to hear different perspectives on evaluating the position. So I love it. Oh, absolutely, man. That's kind of our MO. You know, I was yeah. trying to you know bring this different perspective for sure. Let's start at the quarterback class. You obviously have – I think Chris Sims has shaken things up of late, putting Zach Wilson number one, Trevor Lawrence number two, even having Kellen Mond as his number three quarterback. Right now, PFF sees it kind of chalky with some of the other analysts with Trevor Lawrence one, Zach Wilson two, Fields three, and Lance four. Let's Let's – take a high level approach to this like quarterback evaluation this is a very good class this is one of the best classes we've seen in a very long time what is your opinion of overall the top end of this class and how many like legit franchise type of quarterbacks are in this class is it four is it five if you include mac jones maybe six with kellen mond i'd be interested to know how how confident you feel in this class overall with the number of legit franchise types you know i, I feel really good about the quarterback class in general now it, it, it's different because uh, these guys don't necessarily have the extensive resumes that you typically would require when you're evaluating some of the quarterbacks. Uh, Trevor Lawrence has a bunch of games um, under his belt, and the resume is very, very impressive. Obviously, what he was able to accomplish in Clemson. But I think you can make the case that Justin Fields was impressive during his time at Ohio State. Zach Wilson has been impressive at BYU. And even though Trey Lance really played one full season as a starter at North Dakota State, if you go back and look at how he performed that year, he was also impressive. I think the thing now, the quarterback position has changed. It, it's become more about your imagination when you're evaluating the player and what he could be and less about what he is unable to do. I think if you look at the last couple of years, particularly when you go back and look at the class with Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen, I think after watching both of those guys have the success that they've had in the league, I think you kind of have to throw the traditional norms out. Um, if a team is willing to go all in and really build around the talents and the strengths of the quarterback, that quarterback can have a tremendous amount of success. And it may not be the way that we envision that success coming, but you never could have told me that one Lamar Jackson in the second year in the league would be an MVP player. Um, someone who kind of changed the way that you look at the quarterback as a playmaker, running, throwing, and kind of using total yards and total touchdowns as the barometer or the measuring stick, as opposed to the traditional metrics that we use, passing yards, completion percentage, and those things. And then Josh Allen, watching Josh Allen go from the player who was, look, he was talented at Wyoming, but he was woefully inaccurate and didn't necessarily play well against top competition, to watch his evolution where we're discussing him as a top five quarterback, never would have been able to forecast that. And so I think 
now more than ever, we kind of have to do these evaluations in pencil, not in pen, because it's all based upon where do they go and who is the guy that is calling the plays and designing the plays for the quarterback. I think that's a very good point you bring out there about how in the past it was, how does this guy fit into my scheme? How does this guy fit into a West Coast offense? Can he throw with timing? Whatever. Now it's, what's his talent level? What does he bring to the table? Let me create something around that. And that's a big jump. And so the guys with the more talent, I feel like, are being now coveted highly. I want to talk about kind of, again, high level. You've been doing this a lot longer than we have here at PFF. We have seven years of college grading. How good is Trevor Lawrence at the quarterback position in terms of historically compared to Andrew Luck, John Elway, Peyton Manning, the guys everyone kind of holds up as best quarterback prospects since X? Um, uh, For disclosure, I've been around the quarterbacks, the the young quarterbacks coming out since they've been in high school, Mm -hmm. having been a part of the Elite 11 process. I get a chance to see him in high school, and so maybe I view them a little differently. He is crazy talented. And the thing that is interesting, Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields have always been tied at the hip from the time they were 16, 17 years old. It's always been quarterback one, quarterback two, and the order has been flipped at times. With Trevor Lawrence, I think what you get is a guy who checks off all the box physically and from an intangible standpoint. Um, Size is outstanding. Arm talent is great. Great athlete can move and do those things. Um, You watch him throw. Yes, he can put the ball out there, but he can throw with touch, timing, and anticipation. And then the leadership ability that he displayed, winning pedigree. I want to say you go all the way back to high school, what, 52-4, and um, some crazy record. Um, So he understands how to get the car into the winner's circle, even though I know there's debate about quarterback wins being a stat for the quarterback and all that other stuff. Um, So, look, he he is up there. Um, In terms of the historical perspective, I can't go all the way back to – Elway and those guys, but I would say he is certainly in that conversation. And when I think of about comparing him to Andrew Luck, I think it's very similar because I think Andrew Luck didn't necessarily put up these crazy numbers, but when you watched him play, you just got the sense of, hey man, that's it. That's what a franchise quarterback is supposed to look like. The way he manages the game, the way that he runs the game, the way that he steps and inserts his playmaking ability when it's needed, meaning he makes the critical moment throw, or he understands how to lead his team back when they have to put more on him. Yeah, I think Trevor Lawrence does a lot of those same things. Last part on the quarterback class conversation, or maybe the last part, I would love to hear your thoughts on the comparisons between Mac Jones and Tua Tungabailoa. I, I think that has made a lot of headlines of late, people comparing the two, Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith saying they prefer Mac Jones, even though it's obvious that, you know, they should be propping up the guy that's about to get drafted and the guy they played with last. But I do think that both of those guys graded really, really well at PFF in that system. Had a ton of success at Alabama very early on, too, for Tua Tungavailoa, and then out obviously of late for Mac Jones. What Compare those two prospects for me, and, and what is your opinion of those two players? You know, it's interesting because I have heard um, the love from Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith on those guys, but I think it makes sense because they enjoyed their most success with Mac Jones as the trigger man. When Tua Tungabailoa was the trigger man, Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs were the featured wide receivers, even though those guys were in the four wide receiver group. So I understand that. I think in looking at both guys, I feel like Tua is more talented in terms of arm talent, the way the ball came out. I felt like he was an RPO master at 
Alabama, just understanding how to how to play within that system. Sark did a great job of setting both of these guys up. But with two, it was a lot of the RPO game, the ball coming out fast, quick, and he just kind of allowed the playmakers to go make plays. Mac Jones has been a great distributor. He does a good job of getting the ball into the hands of the playmakers. He reads the field really, really well. I don't think Mac Jones is on par um, in terms of the guys that we talked about, the, the four guys that we'll talk about, um, Lawrence, Wilson, Fields, and Lance. I don't think his talent is in their category. I think what he is is a tremendous player. He plays the position the way that you like it played. And if we were playing a video game, he would be the ultimate joystick because he kind of understands, hey, I'm the coach, you're the player. Here's what I want done on the field. He can do those things. That said, when we look at the game and how the game is played, how many statuesque quarterbacks are really getting it done in the pocket? And everyone will say, hey, Tom Brady, the older Drew Brees. But, yeah, you're talking about guys with, what, 20 years of experience (laughs) at the position, understanding how to decipher NFL defenses and those things. And so I worry a little bit about if it's not all perfect around Mac Jones, how good is he? How can he elevate an offense through his own talent? Uh, If he's drafted at the bottom of the first round and maybe goes to a team that is talented, yes. But if it's a makeover situation where he has to be the central figure in rebuilding it, I'm not as confident that he was shining in that kind of environment. That's actually a really interesting point about Breeze and Brady. When we talk about maximizing that value on that rookie contract, those guys weren't great on their rookie contracts. It wasn't until 07 that Brady really took off as a pure passer and then Breeze, obviously, until he went to New Orleans, so his second stop. So that's actually interesting to look at. I, one, one, one last bow on this quarterback class. If none of the other guys existed, so if, if Trevor Lawrence was there and Justin Fields, Zach Wilson, Trey Lance didn't exist, if they were the only guys in this quarterback class, how many guys would you take number one overall? So like I said, if Zach Wilson was the only guy and there were no other quarterbacks and you needed a quarterback, how many of the guys in this class would you be willing to say, I'll take them number one overall? Uh, only two. I would take okay. Zach Wilson and Justin Fields. And I know we're okay. kind of jaded when it comes to quarterbacks going at the top of the board. Um, I wouldn't say that either one of those guys are necessarily the best player in the draft, but I could see them – emerging as the best player in the draft when we look back at it. And I think the conversation and the comparison between Zach Wilson and Justin Fields is a fascinating one. And I think it's fascinating because you have two guys who are extremely talented, but talented in different ways. I feel like Zach Wilson's talent stems from his arm talent and his ability to make these off-platform throws that are ridiculous while playing the game on schedule. Which is, which is really hard. When you're talented like that and you can make these phenomenal plays, sometimes you can be a little late delivering the ball because you know that you have the arm to be able to do it. But he can play it on and off the script, which is uncommon. The one thing that I worry about with Zach Wilson has been the sudden jump in production this year. Uh, we can complain about the schedule. That's not his fault that they didn't necessarily play um, top teams. And then you just look at the Coastal Carolina game which there were tremendous moments in that for him, but they didn't necessarily get it done. And so you just kind of wonder, like, man, I would love to see him play in a schedule where he had more elite games, but he can't control that. Justin Fields, I, yeah, I say Justin Fields, I think, is interesting because I feel like because he – not necessarily that he's been around longer. I feel like because he's had more big stage games, I feel like we've nitpicked his game enough where 
the consensus on Twitter is that he's not very good. <laughs> and I just think people need to be very, very careful and mindful of that because uh, I had an old scout teach me like, hey, man, when you grade players, grade the flashes because if they can do those, if they can create those high-level moments multiple times, then it's in them. Then it's on you to be able to get it out of them. And so when I look at the stuff that he's been able to do at Ohio State, if you go back to the last two times he faced Trevor Lawrence, I would say that he outdueled Trevor Lawrence, not only this year in the semifinals, but last year in the semifinals, with the exception of the interception, he was terrific. And so if you grade him on the curve that we graded Josh Allen on, I just think you could be uncovering, man, a monster at the next level in a situation where a play caller really builds it around the things that he can do. That's fantastic, that quote on grading the flashes. I know, Mike, you've said a handful of times where we got to see it. You know, we got to see the high end. Can yeah. you see the high end play in this player at whatever position? That, that's, that's awesome to see. I wanted to transition a little bit to the wide receiver class. And I know right now you, your wide receiver rankings are Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddell, Devontae Smith, and then Kadarius Toney and Terrace, Mar- Terrace Marshall Jr. I love your opinions on two players. Terrace Marshall Jr., who right now is a bit lower on PFF's board to compared to some of the consensus, and then also Rashad Bateman, a guy that PFF is in love with right now. I think he's our wide receiver four. Your opinion on those mm-hmm. two players and, and how they compare? You know, it's funny that you bring up the Rashad Bateman thing because I think I'm beginning to have uh, a bit of a crush on him when Let's I look go. at it. And I think this is, <laughs> this, is what, this is what happens. This year is different than it most like recency bias sometimes can cloud your evaluations right the guys that you saw this year versus the ones that you didn't necessarily see you kind of give them more favor because you're like hey i saw him in 2020 this is what he did uh terrace marshall is a good player um does a really good job making the catches doing the things that you like to see from a route running standpoint um create space makes the 50 50 catches does those things. LSU has a long legacy of producing receivers that play and play very, very well in the league. And so maybe you give them a little bump because you inadvertently grade the help, you know. Um, Rashad Bateman is fantastic. And Rashad Bateman is interesting because when I watch him, and some of this is the number like 13, and most of those guys were 13 because of Odell Beckham Jr. But when I look at him, I see flashes of Michael Thomas. I see A.J. Brown. I see the classic traditional number one receiver that may not necessarily be the burner, but they get open, they catch 50-50 balls, they have enough physicality and running skills to make things happen when they get in the open field. And that is traditionally what you want from your number one receiver. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if after I kind of go back through it all over again, that Bateman is in that conversation in the top five because he is exactly what most – offensive coordinators would want in the guy that is the anchor of the passing game, the chain mover, the guy that is the primary with someone on the other side that's more of the big play threat. I want to kind of transition to the cornerback class here because you as a former cornerback have a lot more insight on this class than we do. But I want to go back to last year's class in terms of there were guys that we, everyone seemingly was high on, Jeffrey Okuda coming out that a lot of those rookie cornerbacks struggled mightily right out the gate. There was no guy who came in and was like, okay, yeah, he's going to be good of those first or second round picks. Do you think the no off season was a factor? Uh, it was a fluke or kind of a sign of the times of just cornerbacks are kind of screwed coming into the NFL with all these modern offenses. Uh, I think it's just a very, very hard position to be good at right away. Um, the college game is so much different than the pro game in terms of 
the techniques and how you play. Because in college, you can put your hands on guys up until the ball is, is really released. You can get into bad habits when it comes to your being handsy, grabbing, holding on, and clutching. In the pro game, you have to be able to play with great feet. As much as we love and rave about the physicality of the line of scrimmage and you want your corners to be physical, they have to have the ability to, to shadow box and dance on the perimeter. And I think for a lot of young guys, it takes them a while to understand that delicate balance between being physical, but also being finesse in terms of their footwork and being able to do it. And also it teams, it, it, it's, it's funny because the league went to being a zone league because people wanted interceptions. And now it's kind of back to being a man to man league because you want tighter coverage, which leads to breakups and the wide receivers and the quarterbacks are so good that even when you're in good position, the ball is completed. And do you have the mentality and the mindset to be able to endure seeing guys catch the ball on you when you may not have seen that for two or three years in college? I think that can be tough. Akuda and C.J. Henderson and some of these guys, it's a combination. You have to – you can be a great cover guy, but if you don't have the pressure with you that forces the ball to come out, you can get exposed because you only can cover for so long. And so I would expect these guys to bounce back as their teams around them get better and as they get more comfortable shadow boxing on the perimeter. Do you anticipate, so your rankings in this year's draft class, you have Patrick Sertan, one, Caleb Farley, two, from Virginia Tech, J.C. Horn, three, South Carolina, Sante Samuel Jr., four, Florida State, and then Elijah Molden, five, from Washington. Do you anticipate any of these guys having more immediate success, any of these guys you see as, really NFL ready in terms of what they can come in and do year one? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I think when we dig down into cornerback class, I think the thing that's fascinating to me is the legacy. So many sons of NFL players. Now, I don't know if that necessarily will help them have success right away, but there is something in scouting where we used to talk about the bloodlines and people understanding the quote-unquote family business. When I think about Patrick Sertan, when I watch him, he plays like a vet because he has a bunch of different tools in the toolbox. He can press, he can play off, he can play with vision. He can do a bunch of different things that you really, really like. I would say the same for Asante Samuel Jr., uh, J.C. Horn. They just kind of have an in a feel because I feel like they're very skilled at the position because they made a concerted effort early on to play DB. Um, Caleb Farley, to me, is really interesting because he has the size that you, lent, that you covet, the length, and those things, I do wonder the best system for him because you hear people talk about, hey, the Seahawks system where you can walk up and press and those things. But the more I watch him, the more I think he, he, he's more of a zone corner, meaning that I think what he does best is he plays the game with his eyes. He sees through the receiver to the quarterback so he can get his hands on balls. And I don't know what the, the top end speed is like. And in a zone system like, Speed isn't necessarily the number one requirement. It's about instincts and awareness. I think he plays the game really, really well. But I think like most positions, a lot of it is where do these guys go and do they play in a scheme that best suits their talent? So you don't buy into the four two four forty he said Ivan? <laughs> no, I don't buy into that. Like if, if when I go and I look at my, my notes, like um I like them, but I also have I mean, once again, like it's the helmet, right? I go back and I look at some of the guys that have come out of Virginia Tech, and they haven't necessarily been exactly what we thought. 
when I looked at him, I have to have my notebook here. He played boundary corner at Virginia Tech. I love the zone. I love the instincts. I like the tackling. I like all that stuff. But man, I questioned his speed and I wrote in my notes, I wonder if he's a true number one, meaning if we asked him to lock down and shadow top receivers, does he have that ability? I don't know. And because he didn't play this year, it's hard to go back on last year's tape and say, hey, he's going to be a much better product than the product that we saw at the end of his tenure at Virginia Tech. I kind of just want to pivot real quick to that talk of these pro day 40s that you're going to see reported, these Exos combines. How would you, as a scout, deal with these numbers in a year like this with no combine, uh, you know, no real regulation on some of what you're going to be seeing uh, at these pro days and whatnot? It's tough. Um, You know, like you kind of have to ignore some of the the conversation and the word that comes out. Uh, I thought your friend the show, my co-host on the podcast, DJ, uh, had great conversation with Bruce Feldman about GPS and some of the things that um, teams will utilize to kind of get game speed. I think what you have to do when you're looking at these guys, you have to really rely on the tape and understand who are they playing against? How do they play against them when it comes to recovering and moving? And do you see them in moments where they get beat, but they make sudden acceleration to be able to catch up? Um, I am less inclined to buy into the 40 times and those things. I'm more inclined to trust what I see on the tape. And also, if I have the opportunity to dig into the background and read or discover like hard and fast track times, that kind of gives me a better idea on what guys are and how how fast they they really, really are. Two things there. One, you brought up NFL bloodlines. And if you want to look at a rookie defensive back that like really hit the ground running in the NFLs, Antoine Winfield Jr., you know, a guy that obviously has, you know, NFL bloodlines won a Super Bowl this past year. And it's crazy. You brought up, you know, the, the penalty rules, how they changed the NFL. I talked to Patrick Sertan, Sean Wade, um, Eric Stokes, when, when I talk to him about what's the biggest change from the college to the NFL, first thing they bring up is that rule. You know, first thing they bring up is, man, I can't, t- I can't touch these guys after five yards. That is a big change going from college to the NFL. I wanted to wrap with this, if we could. You mentioned Daniel Jeremiah. Your offensive tackle rankings, you have Sewell, then Slater, and I think that's where the consensus is now. Jeremiah is pounding his table for Rashawn Slater as the best offensive tackle in this class. And, you know, we have him as what? A top 15 player, yeah. number two okay. tackle in the class. What do you think DJ sees? And we'll have to ask him eventually, but why do you think DJ sees Slater over Sewell? And how do we collectively convince him to get on board? Yeah, why is he wrong here? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what he likes about Rashawn Slater, he's a technical marvel. Um, he plays the game like like a vet. Uh, the way that he was able to kind of do the, the dance with Chase Young, I think, resonates with people. Uh, even though he doesn't have the necessary, or like the, the prototypical length that you would want at an offensive tackle because he plays it the right way. He does a great job of minimizing his deficiencies in that aspect. The athleticism is good. He climbs and gets to the next level. And I think sometimes you can find comfort in the steady Eddie player. The reason why, like I am, like you guys, on Panay Sewell is Panay Sewell doesn't look like it, but Panay Sewell is 200, I mean, 325, 330 plus pounds. And when you watch him, he is light on his feet. He easily climbs and gets to the next level. He dominates in the run game. And he really understands what he's doing and pass protection. The fact that he's only 20 years of age and has all of this stuff in front of him, 
I am just more inclined to lean on him because I do think this game is about moving people off the ball and he can move he can move the furniture. He moves it a little differently than Rashad Slater. I think Rashad Slater is a position blocker, does a great job of occupying and tying guys up. Uh, Penny Sewell moves them against their will. And so for me, the physicality is just a little different when I'm thinking about it. Fantastic stuff, Bucky. Love having you on the podcast. Great to get your debut here on Two for One Drafts. Make sure you follow Bucky Brooks on Twitter. That's Bucky Brooks at Bucky Brooks. And also listen to his podcast. It's one of my favorite podcasts right now, Move the Sticks with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. Until next time, man, really appreciate the time. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. In these uncertain times, life is full of questions. Like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western Southern can help you answer them. Backed by over 130 years of experience, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. I honestly want to say this, Mike. I think that was the best group interview like when you're involved too because that's when we normally talk to like other analysts and stuff mm-hmm. that we've really ever done on the podcast i bet bucky brought the heat in terms of scouting terms he's a technical marvel he brought, <sighs> he brought out all the good terms and also he's an elite like, mind in space yeah he's, he's an elite mind in the space i would categorize him as an elite mind in space because i really learned a lot from just that one like 20 minute conversation with bucky brooks he's great man and the voice legendary voice uh he does bring the the best idioms to yeah. the table. It's and he's been doing this for a long time. Yeah, and we like talked a little bit after the recording about like to him. how like how his like opinion of scouting has changed and his opinion of evaluation has changed. We also asked him if he takes voice, like does any voice work or what were you asking him? Voice if he acting. does voice acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like that's a coveted skill set he's got. But there. apparently he received some flack early in the process that people didn't like his voice. Yeah. It's telling him to drink tea. Bullshit. No. That voice is Keep incredible. It. But Bucky Brooks was awesome. We're going to have to get him back on the show here uh, maybe before the draft or shortly after. Until then, let's go ahead and jump now into our interviews with UNC running back Javante Williams and Clemson wide receiver Amari Rogers. Joining the 241 Drafts podcast is former UNC running back Javante Williams. And Javante, Great to have you on. We can do we can do the pleasantries if you want, but I have to bring this up first. That run against Miami, where you're like stumbling out of the gate and you just completely destroy the safety of Miami, Florida. I've seen that play more than I've seen like my family in recent years. Like there are so many people, there's so many people bringing up that play. Can you walk me through that play, please? Because it looks like one of those Marshawn Lynch beast mon- beast mode runs we'll be watching for a long time. Yeah, um, like you said, I ain't even. I didn't even think that much of it until after the game, after I seen like the, the highlight clip. But yeah, it was crazy though. Um, I heard of the one dude and I wish I would have scored though. That's the only that's the only thing about it. I wish I could have I could have stayed up and scored. That would have made it even better. What was the huddle like when you got back to the huddle or the sideline? I feel like it had to have been like it just a crazy experience for everyone around you. Just like oh my god, that was insane. <laughs> yeah, everybody was going crazy. Like um, you could see it on the sideline when I was running. Like everybody was going crazy. Then when I got back to the sideline, like everybody was patting my helmet, like like saying just everything. Well, what's the go-to celebration there? Like act like you've been there before. Or are you flexing on anybody? I mean, I mean, I'd be interested to know what like kind of how you were feeling after. No, nah, I mean I was excited, but like, I ain't never been the type to really celebrate. So um, I don't really got that many celebrations in my bag. So I really, just, I think I just walked back to the hotel. I can't remember what I did. I think I just walked back to the hotel. 
You might have to de develop a celebration at the next level because I imagine it's going to be a pretty successful career for you. Um, so a big part of your game, and it's something that PFF recognizes a ton, it's force missed tackles, and it's something that PFF has been tracking at the college level since 2014. You broke the PFF record for force missed tackles per carry that we've ever seen at the collegiate level. And you obviously broke a ton of tackles in that Miami-Florida game. Honestly, I think there are Miami-Florida players that have burned that tape because it is honestly the <laughs> it is honestly some of the hardest stuff to watch for them because like you turn it on, it's like you and Michael, you and Michael well, Carter were just in your back, dude, just just absolutely lighting people on fire. But what goes into that? And I know that's kind of like the million dollar question: what goes into making people miss tackles? But I'd be love to know your mindset behind breaking tackles, making that first defender miss, and what you do off and on the field to make sure you never go down. Yeah, um, just breaking tackles, that's something uh, Coach G always always preached. Like, when we watch a film and things like that, he said the difference between the good running back and the great running back is not getting what the O-line blocked for, but, like, getting, what, getting what's not there. So, um, like, we always watch film, and he always, like, keep a tally of, like, how many players we may miss. And, like, we had competition and things like that. So, I feel like that that went into it. But also just, like, working out, squatting, things like that, I feel like that's that's really the main, the main key to, like, breaking tackles, just having, like, a strong lower body and um, just keeping a balance. Uh, I, I know there's a ton of competition in that backfield with Michael Carter and you guys competing to force more missed tackles and all that stuff. How much did your relationship and that competition with Michael Car Carter really fuel your fire at UNC? Oh, that's that's definitely like the main reason I feel like I had as good of a season as I did because uh, me and Mike competed in everything, not even just broken tackles, just who can get to the huddle first, who can be the first one on the field, just just any little thing you can think about. Me and Mike was competing, and I feel like that's really what makes a, a player um, as good as they can be, just having somebody to compete against and not getting complacent. Some of the other players on that UNC team, we had Diami Brown on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he talked very highly of you, big on you know the UNC Tar Heels and those things. Talk to me about the type of player Diami Brown is in the huddle and off the field and in the locker room. I know he's this big vertical threat, this big, you know, you know, top 50 talent in this class, but I'd be interested to know from your perspective, the type of leader is the type of player, the type of teammate Diami Brown is. Oh, um, he's always the same person. Like you said, he's a great player on the field, but he's an even better player off the field. Um, he's going to be the same person no matter what, like he's never switching up. And um, I could say that for a lot of players on the team, but Diami just loyal. I mean, what you see is what you're going to get. Like he's not going to switch up on you. Just, just the same person all the time. Let's get back to you, man. Enough talking about these other guys here. We're here for Javante Williams. <laughs> uh, I know you're out there in uh, Fort Lauderdale training for what I assume your pro day at UNC. What exactly are you working on right now? Are you setting any goal times for any drills or any drills are you currently prioritizing? I mean, it's to know what exactly you're going through down there in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, yeah. Um, we're just working on everything, honestly. Uh, all the combine drills, uh, all the position work that we're going to do at pro day. And um, the thing like, that's really different is, like, I'm working out with the wide receivers uh, because, you know, like, the game is changing now. So running back, you got to be able to run routes. So just working on my routes, um, catching as many balls as I can and just things like that. And, and do you think, you know, because I think a lot of people are going to bring up in the pre-draft process about your inexperience, you know, catching the football out of the backfield, running routes from the slot and those things. Do you think that was largely scheme and, and you're going to have more opportunities like that in the NFL? I guess, how do you prove to NFL teams or how do you plan to prove to NFL teams that you can be this three-dimensional pass catching back at the next level? Um, Yeah, just just uh, showing them, like, whatever position they put me in, just doing my best and just doing what I got to do. Um, just showing them that my game is well-rounded. Um, they can see me, like, catching the ball on tape, things like that. And if there's anything they want me to do, I'll just show them that I can do that.
Do you plan to be a full participant at your pro day? And uh, also, what weight did you play at this past season? And are you working towards a new weight this offseason? Oh, yeah, I plan to uh, do everything at, at pro day. And um, this season, I played at, like, 222. And I'm still the same way now. Have NFL teams asked you to get up to, like, 225, 230, or slim down at all? Or are you expecting to kind of stay in that 220, 225 range? No, 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 Tommy. I think I'm going to just stay at this range. Nice, man. That's good. I've talked to some players, man, where they're like eating only lettuce and trying to drop like 30, 40 pounds. So you're, <laughs> you're in a better spot than they are. I'll tell you that right mm-hmm. now. Um, I, I'd love to talk more about your, your play style. Obviously, you know, bigger back guy that you know, lowers the shoulder, forces, ta- forces missed tackles, breaks, breaks tackles, all those things. Is there a player in the NFL you kind of cater your game after? Some people have mentioned Chris Carson to me, the Seattle Seahawks running back. Marshawn Lynch is one that comes to mind for me. Just guys that don't shy away from contact, win with their frame, win with their bodies, don't necessarily force missed tackles. They make missed tackles happen with physical force. So I'm interested to know what running backs you like in the NFL or any games you, you or any players you cater your game after. Uh, definitely Marshawn Lynch. Um, a big Marshawn Lynch fan. But uh, other than that, I like Ty Gurley. Uh, being here from North Carolina, I watched him a lot growing up. Um, Alvin Kamara, I like him a lot. Uh, McCaffrey, um, Saquon, Zeke, just all the, like, the top running backs. So I, I just watch everybody as much as I can. Marshawn Lynch has a pretty decent celebration on that beast mode run. You could always take that. I'm sure the NFL is not finding anybody for that one. That's for sure. <laughs> if you bust that out, if you bust out the Marshawn Lynch, hold it in the game, I'll lose my mind. Cause that, I mean, that, that run at Miami, Florida was worth it. Okay. If you did it at that run, even if you didn't score, I, I mean, if you did score, it would have been fantastic. Um, anyway, I, I'd love to get some more insight jokes aside, more insight on, kind of what went into a given game week at UNC and what you did to prepare for each game? Because I think film preparation, obviously important, obviously studying different things, but what exactly were you looking for on film when you're watching an opposing defense or watching film on yourself in a given game week? Yeah. Um, it's a lot of things I watch on film. I just watch like how the linebackers move, like how they, how they rush, how they like to the swim tight. They try to bull rush you. Um, I watch how the safety rotate. So like on certain plays, um, we'll know who like to unblock the defenders. So we'll know who we have to, who we have to make miss. Or who the quarterback's reading, like whether you're gonna hand it off or throw it. Um and just like the blitzes that they bring, like crash, uh saw, things like that, just what blitz they like on third down, things like that. It's a lot of things that I watch for, but um mainly it's really just watching the linebackers and how they move. And in the offseason, how much has that kind of film work changed? Have you watched a ton of film on yourself? Or are you watching like NFL players? Or are you still watching film in the offseason as you kind of prepare for this pro day in the draft? Yeah, so I'm definitely still watching film because, like, you never know, like, what the scouts going to want you to drop on the board or what kind of questions they're going to ask you. Uh, like, what happened in this game? Why did you do this? Uh, certain things like that. So I just try to be as prepared as I can. We can finish with this one, Javante. I always find it interesting, the answer to kind of these two questions. And I'm sure you'll get them a ton And when you do these Zoom interviews with NFL teams. But why do you love football? How much you love football? And then the other thing is, is what's your motivation? You know, what's your why for trying to be the best at your position to go to the league and have success? Uh, um, I definitely say I love football because I like to compete, and um, and plus the physical part of it. Uh, you can compete in anything, but I feel like football is like the the only sport where you can be like physical with it and just like well around it, and just competing and just being the other opponent. I like that's really why I play football, and um, my why I definitely say is my family. Um, they they put a lot of effort into me, uh, raising me growing up, and I feel like this is my way to pay them back. 
This has been fantastic, Javante. I really appreciate the time. If you bust out that celebration, man, I better get some credit. I don't ask for a lot here. I don't ask for a lot. I'm, I'm waiting to see the Marshawn Lynch in the NFL. But uh, like I said, man, this has been great. I really appreciate your time, and uh, best of luck moving forward, man. Thank you. Joining the Two for One Drafts podcast is former Clemson wide receiver Amari Rogers, one of my favorite slot receiver prospects in this class. I know you're not just a slot receiver, but projecting you to the next level, seeing you play in the slot, seeing what you can do from that position, winning vertically and those things, do like your prospects as a slot type. Great to have you on the podcast. Amari, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Let's start with where you're at, man. I know you're out there in Fort Lauderdale training with House of Athletes, working with a handful of players down there, preparing for what I'm sure is your Clemson Pro Day in mid to late March. What drills are you prioritizing right now? I know you're working on everything, but are there any drills that you're prioritizing first and foremost? Like, I got to nail the 40, got to nail the three cone, anything along those lines? Yeah, for sure. I'm definitely locking on the, uh, the 40, the three cone, and the five, 10, five uh, right now. Just those change of direction in the, in the 40, of course. Because, uh, you know, I feel like with the senior bowl and the season, you know, I have a lot of film uh, that people can look at and they can see how I play and stuff like that. So I just got to go show how I can change direction and, you know, show my, my true speed. Any goal times in mind for those drills? You setting any numbers on the board? Uh, yeah, for my 40, I definitely want to hit mid 4-4. That, that's really what I got for my 40. But the other two, you know, I haven't really went into, you know, good times for those drills yet. But, you know, I'm sure, you know, uh, they'll tell me and I'll, I'll probably get close to that. So I know former you know Clemson running back Travis Etienne is out there with you as well. I don't know. I don't know if you're keeping up with him in the 40, man. I've seen that guy clock somewhere in the four threes, four twos. How has it been? How has it been, you know, extending that relationship, working with Etienne after after obviously uh, participating at Clemson? Yeah, it's been great, you know, just me and him, you know, pushing each other through this process because, you know, we've been together four years at Clemson, so we know how each other works. We know how we, we react to each other, you know, if we're pushing each other and just saying that we need to keep it up if we're slacking or something like that. So it's always good having a teammate that you train with that's been with you through your journey uh, that knows what you've been through so they understand everything uh, and they're on the same page. So, you know, having Travis with me and just seeing how explosive he is, how fast he is, you know, it's just pushing me. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I know I'm definitely close to his level. So just seeing him every single day, uh, just just go out there and grind, you know, it just motivates me to get better as well. How much was Travis working out with you got you and Cornell at Clemson with the wide receivers, man? Because I think he's one of the, if not the best, like pass catching back we've seen come out of the collegiate, you know, collegiate level in quite some time. Like a guy that really understands how to run the route tree, catch passes in contested catch situations. I'm sure you and him and the other receivers there at Clemson work together a ton. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh funny story is when he first got to Clemson our freshman year. Uh, everybody used to make fun of Travis because, like, he literally couldn't catch at all. Really? <laughs> like, he couldn't catch. Um, and he really took that to mind that offseason after his freshman year, caught a lot of jug machines with me and uh, by himself. And, you know, after that, you know, it was never a question about his hands. You know, it just continued to improve all the way up through his senior year. Uh, so he, he's just one of those guys that if he's not good at something, it's going to heat up at him until he, you know, gets right. Uh, so, you know, I just love that about him, just his uh, competitive edge and just the way that he wants to, you know, be the best every single time he's out there. So. That's awesome, man. So, I mean, I think for the wide receiver position and even in running back, you know, catching the ball, having sure handedness is seen as one of these like kind of tried and true traits, something that translates from the collegiate level to the NFL. How do you build that up? I don't think that's, you know, innate nature. I think that's working the jugs machine. That's working late at night, working one hand and those types of things. How do you build up, you know, legit sure handedness at the receiver position? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's definitely repetition. Uh, so like you said, jug machines, you know, after practice, I used to catch 100 balls after uh, each practice, uh, doing tennis ball drills, tennis ball, working on the, the little mm -hmm. objects that you catch in the hand with the hand-eye coordination, uh, working on your grip. You know, if it's sandbox, 
you know, rice box, I'm sorry, rice, uh, rice box and all those things, just working on your grip, that helps as well. Uh, just doing little drills, like we have stuff at Clemson uh, that helped me with, you know, on the screen, you know, doing dots, you know, just reacting, different things like that. So you have that uh, hand-eye coordination down pack. So different things like that, that adds up, that'll, that'll make you a great catch and receiver that I did throughout my career uh, to help me. You know, talking with some other prospects, even like at different positions, that cognitive, you know, work that they do, working hand-eye coordination, I think does get understated. You know, it's what a lot of prospects do when you're looking to work your hands or even just to work your reaction time and that type of stuff that I do find interesting. Going back to your opportunity at the Senior Bowl down there in Mobile, how do you feel like you performed there? What did you gain from that experience? What feedback did you receive from some of the NFL coaches down there at the Senior Bowl? Yeah, for sure. Uh, going into that week, you know, my mindset was that, you know, it's a business trip. Uh, so, you know, I went to go out there, you know, and just show everybody, you know, what, I, what I'm capable of. And I feel like I had a lot that I showed that people didn't see on film this past year uh, as far as my route running and, and stuff like that. And just learning the NFL playbook because, you know, coming from college to the NFL, you know, a lot of people may have questions about, you know, learning the playbook and the terminology and stuff like that. So, you know, I wanted to check all those boxes and just go out there and compete against the best because uh, I knew that if I went out there and just did my thing, you know, people would definitely take notice. Uh, so that was really my approach uh, every single day in practice, just go out there, win as many reps as I can in one-on-one, and, you know, just execute in the team periods. Uh, and I, I feel like I did that, and I just showed uh, a lot more than what people uh, haven't seen. So, you know, I just really confirmed a lot of things that I already knew for myself, but I was just glad that uh, a lot more people got to see what I was capable of and what I can bring to the table. I think an interesting debate surrounding this Senior Bowl is the overall value of the one-on-one drills and how important they are to the evaluation process for NFL scouts and for you know media like myself and those things. What do you think, from the outside looking in, if you're evaluating the wide receiver position, what information is there to glean from watching a guy like yourself or other receivers work in the one-on-ones? What do you think is valuable about that drill specifically? Oh, it's really valuable because especially in the league now, uh, most of the time defense is playing man. Mm-hmm. You know, they're blitzing and they're playing man. Uh, so if you can't win one-on-one, then you can't be on a team. That's really my mindset, and that's really what I've heard. If you can't win on a slant versus one-on-one, you can't play. If you just can't win, period. You can't get open for your quarterback and make plays, and you you can't play. Uh, so that's really how I approach it uh, whenever I'm crafting, you know, out there in practice. You know, I'm trying to win every single rep in practice so that when it comes to the game, it's easy. Uh, so that's really how I say, you know, any receiver should approach one-on-ones, you know, especially in practice. Because, you know, if you don't execute in practice, then it's going to be hard in the game. So just approach it like a, like it's a game in practice and it'll be easy for you. How often are you working one-on-ones in a, in a given Clemson practice, whether it's the offseason or in a game week? Yeah, for sure. Uh, in a season, uh, we did one-on-ones twice a week on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, our padded practices. Business uh, days, so, money days, I'm sure. Those are big yeah, days yeah. for everybody. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, uh, you know, like you said, money days, you know, we're doing one-on-ones, a lot of competitive periods uh, and things like that. Oh, can you see me? I'm sorry. my camera No, you're now. good, man. You're good. All uh, right, yeah. So uh, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, you're doing one-on-ones and competitive, you know, team, best on best, uh, stuff like that, doing release drills as well. Uh, Clemson did a great job, you know, making sure that we – you know, did a lot of competitive drills, uh, but we took care of each other as well. So uh, they did a great job of making sure that we saw each other. Uh, so because, you know, we're the best of the best at Clemson. Uh, so if you, you know, go against the best of the best every single day, then you anything else you see is just normal. So that's really what Coach uh, Sweeney's mindset was and it paid off. Factoring in, you know, all the talented cornerbacks that you saw at Clemson in those money days, those practice days, and who you saw at the Senior Bowl and who you saw in games at Clemson, who were some of the cornerbacks that gave you the most fits or you had the most problems with or, I guess, gave you the best competition in your time in college? 
Yeah, for sure. I'll definitely say uh, going out throughout my whole career, AJ Terrell, uh, early on in my career, when he was at uh, Clemson, uh, we battled every single day because I played, I started playing outside receiver, so he's at corner. Uh, we, we battled every single day. Uh, Mullen, uh, that plays with the Raiders, Raiders right now, mm-hmm. um, and Darion Kendrick, uh, that's there still at Clemson. Uh, those three are definitely the best three uh, DBs that I went up against. And Kayvon Wallace, uh, the safety uh, that's at the Eagles right now, those four definitely got the best out of me every single day. And I feel like I wouldn't be the receiver I am today without competing against him. So, yeah, I think it's important to talk about that transition you made from outside receiver to the slot. In 2018, you only played 101 snaps in the slot, and then you saw that number jump over 400 in each of the subsequent seasons. What went into that move for Clemson to push you into the slot? Is that something where they saw you having the most success? Is that something you wanted to do? I'm interested to know in that transition also with the feedback you received maybe at the Senior Bowl where NFL teams see you playing at the next level. Yeah, for sure. Um that, that was kind of both things, something I wanted to do and something they saw me seeing uh, doing uh, because Hunter Renfro was there in my first two years. Uh, so I'm, I didn't move to the slot until after he, he left. Uh, so, you know, I was just waiting my turn learning. I still want to play, so I told Coach, you know, I'll play any position uh, until it's my time. Uh, so I was, they put me outside, and I was still learning from Hunter, you know, uh, asking him questions and, and practicing and stuff about that because I knew I would eventually move to slot uh, because, you know, that's just, you know, my body type. That's where I probably saw myself being in the league. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I feel like it's good that I showed that I play outside too early on in my career because, you know, right now people are saying, you know, I'm just a slot receiver. But, you know, I have on film me playing outside and stuff like that. So I feel like that was good for me at the end of it all just to show that I can do both. Uh, so I feel like that's, that was uh, feedback, like you said, from the senior bowl. You know, uh, just people uh, saying that, you know, I, I, I showed that I can do play different positions and do a lot of things with the ball in my hands. Uh, and they showed that I showed um, – great route running, you know, which I already uh, kind of knew, but, you know, I wasn't able to show that as much as I wanted to. So that's really why I wanted to do at the senior bowl. Uh, they were, they were very impressed with my hands, uh, how, how I was able to make a lot of con- contested catches um, and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it was a lot of feedback that I got uh, positive and, and some bad too that, you know, I always appreciate because, you know, that's something that I can go back and work on. Uh, so, but all in all, you know, I really appreciate the whole senior, senior bowl week, you know, just getting thrown in the fire uh, and just going out there and competing against the best. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, constructive criticism, only way to get better. That's for damn sure. We've talked a lot about your former teammates, but probably the biggest name coming out of Clemson right now, the guy that everyone's talking about is Trevor Lawrence. I don't want to ask you probably the same question. Everyone's asked you, what's it like catching balls from Trevor Lawrence? What do you think he's going to do in the NFL? Can you, can you give me a story that maybe someone doesn't know about Trevor Lawrence? Could be something small. I just need to, what do we not know about Trevor Lawrence yet that I think people need to know? What you don't know about Trevor. (laughs) I'll say he's, he's super competitive, uh, super competitive. And it's like uh, coach Swinney, he does a good job of letting us have fun at Clemson, you know, doing different things to let us unwind for football every now and then. And we have, like, days where we play dodgeball or something like that or tug of war or something like that, just uh, team constructive things that, that to work on teamwork. And every single time, you know, Trevor made an emphasis that his team was going to win and, like, <laughs> he, he wasn't going to let anybody else win. You know, he didn't win every single time, but you felt him. And you knew that he was going to, you know, bring his best and it wasn't no matter what it was and not just football, but off the field too and anything. So I feel like that's why he's uh, as good as he is because of his competitive mindset and, you know, how he wants to win every single time. 
Dude, Trevor Lawrence in dodgeball sounds like an absolute nightmare. That guy's got an absolute cannon. That's incredible. Um, going back to you, I, I love to talk to prospects about kind of their preparation in a given game week and what exactly you're looking for on film. I think for the receiver position specifically, you're oftentimes working against the same defensive player, the same cornerback in this case, you know, throughout a game. So you're watching a ton of film on him, trying to identify tendencies, trying to work different releases based on those tendencies. What, how much film are you watching in a given game week, and what exactly are you looking for when you are studying a, a defense yeah for sure uh so my typical week is mondays uh we get the scouting report uh so i usually see you know who i'm gonna be matched up against that game so that night after practice i go home and watch individual film on him uh because they, they have folders for each player and i go through and watch that player uh take notes uh see what his technique is you know what his weaknesses i think are uh tuesday you know we start big uh install for the week uh so i usually go through and just whatever install we put in i'll try to watching on film and try to imagine myself doing it and see what it looked like versus their defense. Uh, Wednesday is third down day. Uh, so I usually go through and watch their third downs to see how that person I'm going to be matched up against plays on third down, his leverage or whatever. Um, and then Thursday, that's when we get our first nine. Uh, so we'll know what first nine plays that we're going to be running. And that's when, you know, I can start really imagining, you know, what's what I'm going to see, you know, what what play we're going to be running at what time and how he may uh, play against it. So that's really how I go through that. And then on Friday, when we get to the hotel, you know, we go through everything and wind down uh, at night. I usually just watch, go through and watch the whole game, uh, just see how the whole game flows, how the DB, you know, how he – you know, reacts if he gets the ball caught on him or if somebody scores on him, if he bounces back or, you know, just gets, just getting a feel of how he plays and how he goes through the whole game. Uh, so that's really my whole week of watching film. I have a whole schedule that I do. And so it's been working. So I'm definitely going to stick with it. Dude, I mean, it's organized as hell is what it sounds like. I think that's awesome. <laughs> Having such a routine like that, I think, is super important to kind of make sure you're properly prepared each week. How much does that film routine change in the offseason? Are you watching more film on yourself? Are you watching film on guys in the NFL? I guess, where are you? Where does your film study go in the offseason? In the offseason, uh, in college, uh, my film study went to players in the NFL and coverages. Uh, I was wanting to learn, you know, different coverages because when I first got to uh, Clemson, I really wasn't aware of coverages and, you know, seeing leverage, what they may switch to and seeing the safeties if they're on the hash, off the hash, and maybe cover two or something else, you know, so I really took to myself that I want to learn football and learn coverages when I first got there. So that was really my first three off season. Then going into my last off season, I started studying specific players and just taking different things from their game and trying it in, in my own workouts and seeing if I could do it. And if I could do it, you know, I put it in practice and try it in practice. And if it worked in practice, then it's on to the game. So, you know, it's just little things like that. I was just taking different things from different uh, receivers uh, game and trying it. And if it, if it worked, I just put it in my toolbox. Are, are there certain NFL receivers you're like, you find yourself always watching or are there guys necessarily that you feel like you, you cater your game after a lot that you value or model your game after? Uh, I model my game after uh, Steve Smith. I feel like I, I play like him uh, as far as, you know, when he gets the ball in his hands, he's trying to score. You know, he's not trying to get tackled. And I feel like that's my mentality as well. You know, contested catches, you know, he caught everything that came his way. Um, but really right now, who I study the most is Devontae Adams. Uh, just the way that he's able to to run routes very smooth. Uh, his releases are amazing. You know, he doesn't do that many releases, but every single time he's never getting jammed. Uh, so just little things like that. Because uh, in the NFL, you know, if you can't get off the line of scrimmage, then you're not going to see the field. So if you don't know how to get off the line of scrimmage, then it's over with. So that's really one thing that I study, especially now 
uh, it's just different releases and how you can get up in your route as quick as possible without being touched. I'll say this, Amari. I, I talked to a lot of guys, and you know, Steve Smith is a common comparison. If you're going to compare yourself to Steve Smith, you got to play like an asshole, okay? Because that guy, <laughs> I've hung, I've hung out with him, you know, off the field. We've hung out at the combine and that stuff. That guy approached every single play. He approaches every single meal like he's yeah. going to be the meanest guy there. Like I'm telling you, he's like Marcus Peters in a lot of ways. Like I've heard, yeah, yeah, I've heard yeah. corners. You'll talk to corners like, yeah, I like Marcus Peters. Like, dude, you better be ready to show up then. Like yeah. that guy, that guy <laughs> talks a lot of shit. He always thinks yeah. he's the best player on the field. It's a mentality man steve smith is more than an athlete and obviously a technician from a releasing standpoint that dude is an aggressive person very mentally you know just forward and all that stuff but uh let's finish with this amari let's give some future clemson fans some hope what are they getting in dj wangalele next year the uh you know former five-star guy with a cannon of an arm who i know you played with in that first notre dame game what are the fans getting in dj wangalele they getting a monster. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the one way I can put it. He's been a monster since high school, and I don't feel like it's not going to stop now. Uh, he's just going to continue to improve, and I feel like now that the offense is in his hands, you know, he's just going to do what he does uh, and just be a great leader. You know, sling that thing around. He's going to be throwing a lot of goal balls. I know that. <laughs> but, <laughs> You know, I mean, uh, th- that, that's another guy, too, where you don't want to go against him and dodgeball. I mean, I, that's yeah, got to be – that's another guy that you just got to stay away from. That's awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate the time, Amari. This has been honestly really fantastic. The detail, you know, that you brought into this was awesome, and I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Hope, you, you know, the training goes well in Florida, and then best of luck in the NFL. For sure. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for an absolutely loaded episode of Two Foreign Drafts. Quarterback breakdowns, Bucky Brooks, Javante Williams, Amari Rogers, all the good stuff. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you want to get on the mailbag episodes. And I'll say this right now. It's no longer a bonus. We're doing two a week. We're doing two mailbag episodes a week because of the volume we're getting. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, and drop your question in there, and you will get your question answered. I guarantee answered on one of the mailbag episodes of the podcast. Make sure you do that. Until next time, Austin Gale. Producer Mike Quinn, RIP, Mike Renner, 2-4 Drafts.